Hello and welcome back for episode 22 of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. And in this episode, I'm with a special guest, Dr. Stephanie Tran, who is an endodontist in New York City at Her Holiness the Pulp. We recorded this interview a few weeks back and I just finished editing it and I forgot how fantastic it was. Uh, this is pretty much a free hour of endodontic CE, guys. So I really do hope you guys stick with it and really uh, even have some pen and paper rates to take down some notes because Dr. Stephanie Tran definitely does drop a lot of knowledge and she goes through step-by-step, step, you know, accessing the tooth, cleaning and shaping and obturating. I want to thank everyone for their continued support of the Newbie Dentist podcast and Instagram page. The numbers have been steadily growing. I'm getting a lot of positive feedback from the listeners. And it is quite awesome that I've been able to create this project and have it grow and reach so many people around the world. So if you do listen to it, and if you are a fan, please, please pass it on to your classmates, your colleagues, uh, or your friends so we can grow these things a little bit quicker and try and reach more people. And uh, we'll just jump right into this episode. I hope you guys do enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, the safe place for newbie dentists to connect, collaborate, learn, and grow. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to provide high-quality and high-value content for all the newbie dentists out there. With your host, Dr. Omer Azami. So I'm here with uh, Dr. Stephanie Tran, uh, who's an endodontist in New York, uh, who's kindly offered to be here for an hour with us to talk some endodontics. Uh, so Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I just want to start off maybe with your origin story, if you can give us a bit of a you know, short uh, synopsis of your background, and then we'll uh, sort of jump off from there. Sure. Um, so I've been, I was raised in California, went to school there, went to undergrad at University of the Pacific. And when I had decided to go to undergrad at Pacific, it was to do the accelerated program. So the accelerated program, they have a couple options, but I chose the fastest route, which is two years of undergrad. And I earned my bachelor's in uh, during that time. And then three years of dental school because UOP is a three-year dental school program. So a total of five years. <laughs> so it was a pretty, <laughs> it was, it was pretty crazy, but it was a really good, um, uh, great option. Cause I knew from the beginning, I knew since I was little, I wanted to be a dentist. But what's interesting was that I'd come into school knowing I wanted to be a dentist, but I left school not 100% sure what kind of dentist I wanted yeah. to be. So my route to endo wasn't your um, straightforward, like straight from en uh, straight from undergrad route. I, I had gone through dental school. I loved a lot of aspects of dentistry. Yeah. And then I went, decided to go to GPR after because I wasn't dead set on specializing at the time. I knew I liked endo, but I, there were a lot of parts of dentistry that I liked. So I just wanted to be a strong general dentist, at least overall, yeah. um, no matter what I decide to do. So I did a GPR in New York, and um, that's how I ended up with the New York connection. So I did my GPR in New York, made some connections there, decided to move to Philadelphia and uh, practice general dentistry for a couple of years there. And during those years, I knew for sure I wanted to go into endodontics. Yeah. And um, we can get into kind of the reasons for why sure. in a little yeah. bit. Um, and then I just applied to endo. And I attended University of Tennessee for my endodontics program. And that was great. So that was a two-year program. And um, I had completed that this past June. Okay. So I've been in private practice in endodontics since then. That's awesome. So you mentioned um, you knew from when you were a kid you wanted to be a dentist. Like, How did you, how did you have that connection? Uh, do you have like dentists in the family? Or is this something that you kind of saw and kind of uh, were drawn to? 
Yeah, so I wanted to be a dentist since I was young, uh, partially because of influences from my uncle and aunt, who are both dentists, they're general dentists. Yeah, and I uh, spent a lot of time with them, shadowing at their offices and seeing how they practiced, and I really enjoyed it. So, um, but I probably was really cemented it my decision because I really liked art you know as we know as dentists we work a lot with our yeah. hands as well as the diagnosis and the science behind it so all those things kind of coming together and knowing that I really wanted to be involved in healthcare and, and helping our patients those all combined to decide I really loved dentistry. Yeah, that's pretty cool and that's so unique that you had the opportunity to do like the accelerated program and then uh, the three-year dental program because I mean that's five years after high school most you know most other people are like barely like finishing up undergrad by that point and then going into dental school. So um, you had the luxury, I think of like after finishing dental school and doing your GPR of like still being like fairly young, right? So you can work for a few years even um, and then do your specialty and still be like um, age wise, like ahead of the game a little bit, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that was pretty nice. It was pretty nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, like the GPR situation, I've been talking to obviously a fair few people about, uh, you know, pros and cons of doing a GPR um, and I know I've talked to you over Instagram and you've mentioned you enjoyed it a lot and I had a lot of like oral surgery exposure, which was, which you found pretty exciting. Um, and I know a lot of us like oral surgery as well. So tell me a little bit about that GPR year, like what kind of things um, you learned and some of like the major like pros and cons of it. Oh yeah. So my GPR was a really great balance of both hospital dentistry and clinical outpatient dentistry, the normal like day-to-day clinical yeah. stuff that we see. And for me, GPR was what really cemented that I loved endo because uh, in my GPR program, so the hospital part means that you're on call as well as hospital rotations. And the on-call, a lot of it was a lot of the things that I'll, I will now see in endodontics. So severe pain, swelling, acute abscesses, yeah. and, um, and uh, trauma. And so when, because I got to manage, I actually realized I really liked it. Some of my co-residents, they didn't, um, but I happened to really like those aspects of being on call. Yeah. And then um, also what was interesting about the GPR was I came with GPR being really terrified of <laughs> surgery to be, to start yeah. with. I didn't have as much experience in dental school as I would have liked. It just happens to be that way with my uh, patient pool. So I loved dental school, having some surgery experience, but just being really intimidated by yeah. surgery, being really intimidated by placing incisions and flaps and uh, taking teeth out mm-hmm. and stuff. But then in residency, it's nice because you have a lot more independence than dental school. Sure, you yeah. know, you're, you have the independence to make treatment planning decisions, but you have somebody there to guide you and to, to help you out if you have any questions on things or to, if you're not sure about technique or whatnot. Yeah, the safety, to really the teach safety you is nice to have. Like, you can exactly. Take on a bit more. The, that, yeah. Yeah. So it was, that part was great. And so that's why I ended up doing more surgeries because I was, you know, interested in doing them, but I, I really liked, I had that guidance. So I had, was able to do perio surgeries, more, um, uh, oral surgery, um, surgical extractions, that kind of thing. So it made me more confident in leaving my GPR program and practicing general dentistry. And uh, when you finished up your GPR, like, did you know you wanted to do endo or that's something like over the couple of years of uh, private practice, you kind of developed or sort of uh, solidified in your mind that that was the way you wanted to go? Um, It was 
I was pretty sure at that point that yeah. I wanted to go into endo. And so when I moved to ended up moving to Philadelphia, it was perfect because Philadelphia is a really big CE course, um, really big hub for endo CE courses okay, nice. and uh, yeah. endo speakers. Yeah. So I had gotten to know some of the residents at the other programs and I sat in on a fair number of CE courses, uh, talked to the directors, even did some externships at their programs. and. That just really solidified it for me that I really loved Endo, the the educational aspect of it as well, in addition to actually doing yeah, that's it. Perfect. So in your first year, obviously uh, with the newbie dentist podcast here, like it's more for you know new grads and dental students and everything. So mm-hmm. um, in that first year after your GPR, um, how much Endo were you doing like in your private practice, and what was like your sort of like, and obviously like you're interested in it, and uh, presumably like you're like you know reading up on it and and you know, going to courses like you said, um, but like clinically, like how comfortable were you and and how frequently were you getting to uh, do some endo treatment? So I was able to do a fair number, not probably not quite as many as I would have liked because the private practices that I was working at were more for like underserved communities in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. So I actually did a lot of extractions. <laughs> that's why I became so that's, comfortable that's with like surgery. where I am at right now. <laughs> I want to do more endo, but everyone's yeah. like, just pull it. I'm like, are you sure? Please like, <laughs> let me just do some endo. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, so... I ended up becoming, that was another factor. I ended up becoming way really comfortable with surgery because of the patient population, yeah. because of the treatments I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was actually a teeny part of me that considered, a small part of me that considered going into oral yeah. surgery. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that I was almost going to reconsider my decision of going to endo. <laughs> but uh, with endo, it's nice because I got to make the decision of whether or not I felt comfortable treating it. So I got to do a fair number of them. It helped though that in, I did a f- I did quite a few in dental school and my GPR, I asked them to tailor it towards doing a lot of endo. So they scheduled me a lot of endo patients and they, and my co-residents would pass me a lot of endo patients. That's great. So that helped a lot that built my skills too, before I even got into private practice. And so I was able to feel really comfortable about doing a lot of, a lot of the treatment. That's perfect. Um, So I wanted to, um, and then I I think just something that I wanted to do a bit more so of uh, going forward is get a little bit more more clinical. Um, so people listening uh, can actually get some value out of, you know, the guests that are coming on and, and uh, sure. tap into their expertise a little bit. So what I want to sort of do is like set up a, like a scenario and kind of get you to like walk us through it. Um, so um, you've diagnosed uh, like a lower first molar for, you know, irreversible pulpitis that needs some endo treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, the first question I have um, that I found myself to is, which is, I want to actually ask you is a lot of times, you know, the patient comes in, their symptoms are like pretty, like, uh, like as soon as they're ta- like telling you their symptoms, like okay, yeah, I know, I know what this is. And then you like obviously you tap the tooth; it's, it's tender. You uh, you put the endo ice, and it's like um, you know prolonged sensitivity for a while. So you're pretty confident with the um, pulpitis and uh, apical periodontitis like diagnosis. Um, but I find in mm-hmm. these teeth, when I access, when I actually access it, um, it's like necrotic. Like there's no blood; it's not hyperemic. So like what what mm-hmm. is like what's that? What's happening there? <laughs> Basically, what do you think? Oh, so. Do you find a little bit of tissue in there though? Like, or you're talking about, because there's, there are going to be teeth where you can have a little bit of sensation, but the tissue, the amount of tissue can look very, very minimal. Um, So you're not, you're not always going to have a lot of blood. There's going to be cases where a tooth is really hyperemic. But then there are some cases where the tooth has those symptoms, but because of like calcification and whatnot, the amount of tissue in there okay, is actually yeah. pretty minimal. Yeah, because I'm always but surprised. I get in there expecting to see like this blood work and it's like dry. I'm like, what's going on? Like, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it actually can be just very, very minimal tissue that's left. Yeah. And then there, but the ones that are like super narcotic, like there's a lesion on the radiograph and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Those are usually like su- very, very empty or with, um, uh, purulent exudate. Yeah, in it. for sure. Okay. So what I want to do is, um, because obviously endodontists, because you guys do this all day, every day, you have like a set sort of like routine that you do, right? Like you access the tooth and mm-hmm. you have like a like certain sequence, right? So I was hoping if you can share that sequence with us, um, because I find like, you know, um, in my offices, and I think a lot of associates, obviously, uh, if we're working out of more than one office, there's different like endo systems and everything. Um, so you kind of got to get familiar and comfortable mm-hmm. with like, maybe like it's like a wave one gold or it's like a pro taper gold. Um, so there's a little bit of a, mm-hmm adaptability and like learning you gotta take place but um so i want to see if you can maybe just walk us through like after you've accessed and you found your canals sort of like what's your sequence like do you uh you know uh prep each canal like separately or kind of like do you know like go get your working length with each one and then kind of go in sequence or so we just talk us through that Mm -hmm. sequence that'd be pretty cool i think it'd be very uh valuable for the listeners do you also would you want me to go over how to how a little bit about access itself i find that access (laughs) is actually most important part like that sets you up for success okay let's do that so uh so let's say it's a lower first molar um so if you just yeah maybe just talk talk us through like after you've got your dam on and then go from there sure so the the way i proceed with access is really uh, by looking at the root bulges. So it's looking at the CEJ. The occlusal table will lie to you. (laughs) Teeth can be slightly tilted. Teeth can be, you know, as we all know, they can be tilted. They can form where it's slightly tilted, like lower premolars will do that, right? Where the occlusal table is really, really uh, lingually uh, facing. Yes, exactly. So with, with teeth, we know that they develop from the inside out right so the pulp is right in the middle mm-hmm. the pulp being right in the middle means that the uh cej the shape of it will tell you exactly where the pulps are so how we were taught and how um we were taught really well i really appreciate my directors did this they really focused on evaluating the root bulge you could do this by probing so you've already numbed up the patient yeah. you can even do this before you have the dam mm-hmm. on so yeah. the tooth is nice and numb you probe around the tooth and you feel for where the root bulges are those root bulges on the direct buckle and the direct lingual will tell you the center of where the pulp should be okay that's pretty cool yeah. so that you do that first and then where you should start accessing is not so much in the direct center necessarily but tor- but the mesial buckle pulp horn especially when you're first like getting used to doing endo yeah. i mean you know you see those crazy accesses by um by endodontist but that's you know that's <laughs> after a lot access, of experience yeah. <laughs> understanding and stuff like that yeah. so for beginners the best thing to start out with is the mesial buckle pulp okay. horn that's going to be you're going to be like a third of the way with the occlusal table yeah. and from the buckle. So a lot. So if you start with a mesobuckle pulp horn, the reason is because studies show that the mesobuckle pulp horn is the, going to be the highest pulp horn and the most obvious for all the pulp horns. Okay. So it's going to be the easiest yeah. to find even in a slightly calcified case. Mm-hmm. So that, that one is going to tell you, you know, you're going to hit that one first then you can draw your occlusal table map. So sometimes it's actually easy to start off when you're accessing rather than going straight all the way to the bottom because you're not really sure how deep things are sometimes. You can draw yourself a little map like two millimeters deep 
Okay. Like, of like where you're prepping like an occlusal cavity prep kind of, and then. Exactly. Yeah. So it's going to be kind of a trapezoid shape mm-hmm. where you're going to mark where the pulp horn should be according to the root bulges. And you can even make little dots. That's how I would teach my dental students to do that. You can make little dots and then you can connect the dots and make a two millimeter deep. Uh, and what burr? Are you using like a round burr for this or? No, an 1157. So it's a round bottom. Uh, it's a rounded, longer uh, carbide burr. Okay. So kind of like a cylinder burr, but it has a rounded bottom okay, on it. Okay, cool. 1157. Yeah. And then, um, then, you know, after you figure yourself out and you, you make that, that shape, you can follow that shape and that you should be able to hit all the pole horns from mm-hmm. there. When you're doing it, you can keep an eye. The best thing to do is keep an eye on the length. We know from the way teeth develop, it's going to be about six or seven millimeters from the occlusal table to the uh, pulp chamber. So you don't ever want to be past seven millimeters. So this is the, this if you're is deeper the, than seven millimeters, the there's a good of the chance. Pulp chamber yeah. yeah, to the pulp floor. So if you're past seven millimeters, you're, in you're not in pulp. You're probably, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's when the heart rate goes up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So you do that. And then uh, what's your next step? So let's say now you found all the pulp horns. Oh, uh, the big thing to do with lower molars is not be too lingual because it's very easy to face it to, uh, to be too lingual since the occlusal table is usually a little more lingually inclined. Yeah. And then then you're two lingual and you can uh, perforate out the lingual. So that's a, that's a big yeah. tip. So let's say you found all the canals, uh, orifices. I usually, if it's not necrotic, I will put in a, uh, a file just to make my glide path. So like a 10 file usually. Yeah. And the big thing to do is you don't have to twist it in, but kind of you're gently twiddling it in. So you're like, twiddling back and forth to guide the file down the canal and that's just see if you're kind of loose and see if you're at a fairly decent working length and that's based on your estimate of what the working length should be based on your radiograph then after you've made yourself a glide path you can then start using orifice openers so doing starting from a larger but wider uh, taper file so like a 2508 is usually a good file to start with and you're not trying to take it to length it's really just a little bit just the occlusal third um the cervical third of the canal system yeah. so is this uh, like similar to what, a, your file. what like a sx file would be is that like a one day i would honestly not use an sx because an sx is uh, has such a thin fragile tip that they're super prone to uh, fracturing really? if you're not careful okay. with them yeah sx is very very prone to fracturing yeah. so something like really even the profile or the k3 files i know they sound super old school but they make some really great orifice openers that have landed edges mm-hmm. so that means the blades aren't sharp like a um uh, like a a pro taper yeah. but they are blunted on the sides so they aren't as aggressive yeah. and they're great because just right in those those initial first few millimeters so the occlusal third of the canal system yeah you don't necessarily need to go down super far it's just to make yourself a little opening that guides the the subsequent files yeah. 
down the canal. Mm-hmm. So you always want to kind of the canals in like thirds. So there's going to be the cervical third, middle third, and then the apical okay, third. So yeah. the cervical third, you're using slightly wider tapers. I know an 08 sounds like a huge taper, but you're only taking that for the very, very occlusal, t- uh, the very top of the canal system and then you can treat the middle that's usually like an 06 but not a huge 06 we're not talking about like a 45 or 50 06 this is like a 30 06 or 25 06 and then to finish it off you can finish off with an 04 taper so that's usually my general that's a sequence that i would teach like any general dentist to do a very it's a systematic way of approaching so what's uh because obviously and I'm, i'm guilty of this like myself is like like we rely on like the system, right? So we have like the, mm-hmm. um, you know, SX, you know, S1, S2, F1, F2. And I like, we just like mm-hmm. dumbly just follow the colors. Like <laughs> it's very, it's very mm-hmm. dumbed down for us. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. with this, uh, like 2508 and then like 3006 and then finishing with the 04 taper, um, of the common like systems out there that most like associates would have in their practice, um, what would this mm-hmm. be most closely like, um, replicated by which system would you recommend? So a lot of, there are certain systems that will have all the shape sizes. Um, so that would be like a K3 or profile. Yeah. Those are very old school shape. Um, those are very old school systems, but they're very good for um, pretty straightforward cases because yeah. they are landed files. They don't, they aren't super aggressive and they're not super large. Yeah. The pro tapers, the F, S1 and S2 are great files. Those are ones I use in my uh, own cases system pretty regularly. The SX is a little aggressive to take down that far. SX is, it can be good for um, the very cervical third, the very top of the canal system, but they are sticky for any kind of curved canal system because if you push on them too hard, the apical tip, is very prone to fracturing. Yeah. Okay, I'm scared of that. The F1 and F2 files are oh. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. I said I'm scared of the using the SX now because that's like my go-to. Like I love that thing. So <laughs> so it's good that you mentioned this. I gotta be a bit more careful. It can be good, yeah. but it you know you just gotta be careful yeah. with it. It's going to be a little bit more prone to, to fracturing if it's a really curved canal system. Yeah. B2 or something that it can be really good, but you have to be careful mm-hmm. with them. Um then the F1 and F2 two are okay, but any larger than that, the issue is that the taper on like an F3, F4, F5 are very, very large. Mm-hmm. And so you can be taking away a lot of tooth structure if you're trying to use it in a smaller canal like mesials of lower molars or yeah. the buccal canals of upper molars or any premolar really. They, they're so large. Yeah. So an, an F3 the F series is really better for maybe anteriors or fairly straightforward canal mm-hmm. system. Wave one is a very good solid um, system for a lot of people to use um, for straightforward cases as well. The only thing is that a, a wave one having the whole one saw file system isn't the best thing for a lot of post, not all really, uh, not all canals are the same size. Yeah. Right. So that's, about the way yeah, so it doesn't leave you system. much room for like it's a wiggle a, room right like if it doesn't work it doesn't work and if you don't have anything else then you can't really uh like get through that canal so that's a tricky one right? well no the way the whole calling it a way a single file system is a little bit of a misnomer because it actually comes with 
comes with like larger files for larger systems and smaller yeah. files for smaller yeah. systems. So it ends up being multiple files. You have mm -hmm. to use exactly. So you, if you use those, a lot of times you end up having to use the smaller file for very file for those like really large palatals or an anterior tooth or something. Yeah. So it's a great straightforward case type of file, but it's not necessarily best case or maybe the best thing to approach a really um, uh, complex, very small calcified yeah. case. And so in this sequence that you just mentioned, uh, um, but, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I was just saying, um, so systems from profiles, K3s, those are pretty, pretty good, but, but you just have to be careful with some of the files because they can get really, really large. Yeah. And um, at what point in the sequence are you like uh, measuring your working length? Like, because uh, obviously you said with the 10 file, where you initially go, you're kind of going to your estimated working length that you kind of uh, got from the radiograph. Um, so when mm -hmm. in the sequence are you actually like fully getting your accurate sort of working length with your apex locator? Um, after the orifice opening. Okay. So you, so you put the 10 and then you do that with like a 15 hand file or you still just use your 10? 10 or 15, just depending on how tight the canal is. If it's really, really loose with a 10, I'll use a 15 yeah. because it's always better to take your working with a file that's slightly binding in the canal system. So usually a 10 or 15. If it's something that's too large, the problem with that sometimes is that those larger files can be too stiff to get around whatnot, and then you can accidentally ledge. Yeah. And then um, what, uh, do you use like a pro lube or like a, any sort of similar lubricant like in these initial steps or are you just, um, just irrigating uh, throughout? I, because especially a lot of them have um, substances that will react with the hypochlorite. So when you rinse out subsequently with hypo, it actually effervescence. So it brings up a lot of the debris and everything. Okay. But there are papers up the flutes so what happens is that you know you have the lubricant in there which is good it has edta chelates all that stuff yeah. you don't stop and wipe your files and rinse out really regularly it can start to um the it starts using the debris from the tooth structure and combining with the lubricant so it's clogging up the files and when it clogs up the files you're actually putting too much torque on the file and that can make it prone to fracture. Okay, that's well. a good tip. So make sure you gotta make sure you take it, it out and wipe it down every time. Yeah. Okay. And then do you use uh yeah. do you use a lubricant like throughout the whole thing or just for the initial like or orifice opening and then you kind of just switch over to using like the irrigants to keep the canal like wet? I actually don't use a lubricant that often. I use my hypo as kind of a lubricant. So I'll fill the canal system a little bit with hypo. So that way I'll just take my files in through the hyperchloric. Okay, that's pretty cool. And then um, obviously like a lot of like videos and a lot of techniques recommend like between each rotary file to like to obviously irrigate and like uh, recapitulate with like a hand file. Uh, is that something that you recommend doing as well? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. So at least between every file or two. You know, you can get away with two files, especially if you're not moving very far. Yeah. Um, so, but recapitulating the, using the smaller file, usually like a 10 file that you take, not not just the working length, but maybe even like half a millimeter or a millimeter past working yeah. length, and then just wiggling that up and down, that just r really removes and dislodges a lot of the debris to get into the hypochlorite too. Okay, that's perfect, yeah. Yeah, so it's important. So um, let's talk about uh, obturating now. So you've you've uh, prepped everything. You've done your shaping to, to length. 
And then, um, so what's your final, what's your final, uh, irrigation sort of like sequence? Do you use like a, like a QMIC, EDTA QMIX kind of thing, or like a BioPure or anything like that before you like dry the canals? Yeah, I'm good as all the good research behind it. EDTA is excellent. So we don't recommend chlorhexidine any research did. So some of the previous schools of thought was to use all three. Yeah. Chlorhexine is a good disinfectant, don't get me wrong, but it has a couple of that it's um, it can react with the other irrigants a little bit, yeah. but more importantly, it um, it is not tissues, and so that's why we don't even recommend using chlorhexidine for revascularization type cases. And in general, the hypochlorite and the EDTA do everything for yeah. you, so you don't need that third step of the chlorhexidine. Mm -hmm. The EDTA chelates, so it removes the smear layer, it chelates the inorganic material, yeah. the hypochlorite removes the organic material. So all the best sequence, though, like your ending irrigation sequence, yeah. is to do a full thing of hypochlorite then EDTA, and then as a final rinse, hypochlorite again. And the reason is because EDTA is acidic, so it can affect the walls a little bit. It's better just to rinse everything out again with hypochlorite. Okay, nice. Yeah, that's what we were taught in Melbourne as well. That was like the sort of sequence. And um, so mm -hmm. what's your... Uh, and we had a few questions about this, obviously with the obturating, um, a lot of the offices now are you know going towards like the heated carrier sort of model with like gutta core or like thermophil. Mm -hmm. Um, so what's, what do you use? And then what are your like different opinions about the different techniques? Um, and basically like, what do you think you get, gets the best result? And, and also like keeping in mind that if a case does fail, like in terms of retreatability, uh, I know I've been hearing like the mm -hmm. thermophil, like my uh, endodontist that I work with, uh, she hates, uh, thermophil because <laughs> uh, it makes retreats quite hard, she says. So, uh, what's your mm -hmm. sort of experience exactly. and your thoughts about, about the op training systems? So in my residency, we were taught pretty much every file system and every obturation system yeah. in the book. We, they, we want, they wanted us to really be uh, experienced with all the different methods and all the different techniques so that we could evaluate them with honestly, the work, you know, content, uh, ver warm vertical is my favorite. That's the one that a lot of ended on us yeah. use. So that's where you take some sort of heated tip, either system B, uh, Heat, heat, whatever, it doesn't matter the brand, but a heated tip, you take it down to about half what you're, they say to within five, um, five millimeters, no more than five millimeters from the age. Okay. Yeah. Thing is though, most canal systems are too small to take that far down yeah. the canal system. So you really, let's say as far as you can, let's say wherever, as far as your heated tip can yeah. go. What that does is that that heats the gutta percha and helps it fill all the nooks and crannies and everything. Mm -hmm. Then you backfill it with some sort of heated gutta percha using some sort of backfill system. Uptura is the classic one, but you also have um, uh, elements obturation units yeah. um, and uh, calamus and whatnot. They're all good and brands. Are you doing really this like in so increments, or you kind of, or is it just like as your experience with it goes up, you kind of, you can fill the whole canal like in one shot or is it better to do like small increments and like pack it again and then. It's always better to do it in small increments. Yeah. So do it in about two to three millimeter increments. Mm -hmm. And really that you're only doing that two or three times, right? The amount of increments you're doing. So it doesn't take that long at all. And the reason is because sometimes when it's a really large canal, 
can get caught up with an air bubble and the air actually cools the gutta percha down a little too quickly and sometimes so that's how you get those oh voids. yeah okay cool yeah mm-hmm. yeah i've seen those and then yeah but, and that's like uh, that system is like pretty easy to clean up as well right i think that's like one of, one of the like advantages of it like the or the, yes. the chamber is like pretty clean once you finish with that sort of uh technique versus like the gutta core and stuff like i find it creates such a mess and it takes like a long time to sort of get that chamber clean afterwards exactly so the thing about the gutta um the warm vertical technique that technique is great because it's very easy to clean it's very easy to compact it it does get into a lot of those laterals Mm -hmm. and um spins and whatnot quite well if it's done if it's done well and it gets it done better than say a cold lateral technique yeah. cold lateral is the way a lot of schools yeah, teach and it's, taught, the reason yeah. Is because it's, yeah it's it's a very good solid well published well understood technique it's very solid with cold lateral it just doesn't fill maybe all the 3d anatomy quite as well yeah. but it might not be it and it might not get laterals quite as well but for a very simple straightforward case it's a great option yeah. um so with warm vertical that's my favorite cold lateral not i don't do that very often and you just have to be careful with cold lateral that you don't push the spreader in too far because that can cause a lot of stress on a tooth and be make it more prone to vertical root fractures, fractures. Yeah. yeah exactly okay perfect and um, um so what tips do you have oh, so we, sorry go ahead oh sorry uh you were asking about thermophil yeah. so the problem with thermophil is that it sounds like a great option and but number one like you said it's very difficult to clean number two it's very difficult to retreat gutta core yes it's made of gutta percha but the core gutta percha is not the same yeah. as the outside gutta percha yeah. so it the two of them actually don't they aren't bonded that well so you have that issue between the two layers yeah. and then also the core gutta percha doesn't dissolve in our normal solutions yeah uh doesn't diso- dissolve as well so trying to remove it is not as easy as we'd like it's not as easy as normal gutta percha yeah. and then the issue with thermophil it's a beautiful technique if it's done well it's actually the most technique sensitive of all the obturation really? techniques. It's a great technique for filling the 3D obturation. Of yeah. course, yes. I mean, Johnson developing that technique. It's a great one. It really gets into all the nooks and crannies, mm-hmm. but it's so easy to mess up. It's very easy to push gutta percha out the apex, like way far sure, out yeah, the apex. For sure, it's, yeah. And it's also very easy to make it too short because sometimes you don't know exactly how far you're pushing, etc. Or the gutta percha cools down too quickly. And then you're too short. And then you can't even pull a cone out the way you can with a warm vertical or cold lateral. Yeah. You are kind of stuck. Then you have to try to retreat oh, it. <laughs> um, and then with cold, I'm sorry, with the metal and plastic uh, thermophil carriers, they're just really difficult to remove sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, if the metal carriers are cut down too low, they are near impossible to remove. So, yeah, do you so recommend, uh, each- so sorry, with uh, like thermophil or the metal, like the plastic ones, is it better to leave like the core, like maybe one or two mils outside of the orifice? So it's like something to hold on to or grab if a retreat's needed or? Exactly. Yeah. So that's actually required for the metal carriers. You have to leave a, um, at, least, at least a few millimeters up into your core buildup yeah. because 
it's then it's, otherwise it's impossible to retreat. With the plastic carriers, it's not as it's very hard for you to leave it. So then, what ends up happening is that most people usually cut it down, which is fine. But um, with plastic carriers, those you just have to use different methods to try to get them out. So they're just very difficult yeah, to true. get out. They, it's doable, and sometimes they come out really easily, but a lot of times they can be very difficult. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty cool. And then so that's mm-hmm. done. So that's, like, that's pretty thorough. I think that's amazing. Thank you for like going through the technique because that's like a pretty much like a nice little endo lecture for everyone to get the review. So in terms of yeah, sorry, it was no, a lot that, of that's like I'm actually like I'm, this is like useful for me. So I'm sure other people because I'm like I'm writing down notes here. So I've like a full, uh, full page of notes now, which is nice. So, um, so in terms of like uh, clinically for you know new grads uh, to gain some confidence, um, I know like the. Um, uh, like American Association of Endodontics has sort of like that um, radiographic assessment sort of like tool to like determine how easy or hard like a case might be just based on like the mm-hmm. PA that you might take. Um, what tips mm-hmm. do you have for like, you know, like your first like 10 cases, like what kind of stuff uh, should you be looking for and what kind of stuff should you like, like what red flags on a PA that you might see um, or even like a patient that you might see that um, it, it'd be like not a good case to start with or to tr- attempt in your first like, you know, 20 or 30 cases. Yeah, definitely. So anteriors, especially ones that are not too long. So basically centrals or laterals or, and lower premolars that you're 100% sure they are single canal. Yeah. Those are the best ones to start with because the canal systems are going to be uh, you know, fairly straightforward. They're fairly straight. And usually um, you can tell whether or not they're salsified and also find back the chamber more easily. Yeah. You know, it's not you're not looking for necessarily multiple canals, whatnot. So the big things to keep in mind are if you have a see a receded chamber or receded canal system, that's where it looks a lot thinner. Yeah. Um, the canal systems have some calcification. It's not as clear and wide and dark as the other, as uh, other canal mm-hmm. systems. Secondly, for the pulp chamber is how far from the occlusal table, the pulp horn is. Yeah. So if it's really far down there, chances are it's even harder to find, um, especially without a microscope yeah. and experience of wearing, knowing where to look because a calcified case is very, very yeah, daunting. For, yeah. yeah. And then another thing is to know whether or not there might be a second canal, canal that's coming uh, like a deep split or um, where there is a second canal is looking for what's called a fast break. That's where you could see the canal in the cervical third, the very top yeah. of it. But all of a sudden it kind of dissipates towards the second half. Okay. That means that there's a good chance there's either a second canal um, where it starts out as one and becomes yeah. two, or it just um, it, it has this really thin thinned out, it becomes like a little bit more calcified. So lower premolars are a little bit prone to that where you'll see the pulp horn more obviously but the system might yeah. be a little bit thinner yeah. so you just look for a some uh, scary uh, lower premolar uh, radiographs that I see like on, on Instagram with like it kind of splits off into like three canals and like oh my god like <laughs> I don't want to be stuck doing that so that's like you said you gotta be sure if there, there's like definitely one canal in there and not those like crazy uh, like apical third like anatomy on those ones and um, exactly yeah. oh and then um looking at the apex so looking to see if there is a quick little like a dilaceration or a becomes very thin so upper laterals are very prone to this and that the apical third will cur- will curve more acutely yeah. and that can be really hard because when the 
apex of a lateral is often really thin and really skinny. Mm -hmm. And so if you're using a, a file that's too big, it will be really more prone to transportation or even perforations. Yeah. And then, so uh, this one question I had was, um, so say if you're like working on a, like a multi uh, orifice tooth, like a lower molar again, um, are, you, are you like the sequence that you kind of went over with like the 10 and then the rotary files, are you doing like, do you drop your 10 file in each canal and then do the orifice opening in each canal and then kind of do it that way? Or do you like finish one canal and then finish the next canal and then finish the next one kind of thing? Like what's your, what's no, your I do, method? I do all the canals at the same, same time. Thing. I don't do it one by yeah. one. Um, for the 10 file that, that is really important to really try to wiggle it down. And then what the, what you do is not just guiding it down is, but you wiggle, you kind of cut, counterclockwise twist so you kind of get it a teeny bit loose so you back it out maybe a millimeter or two from where you had it yeah. and then you uh, grasp it up and down to, and that gets you a glide path that loosens the canal up a little bit so that you can guide the files in more easily so that's how you do it you're kind of rasping it up and down yeah, that's perfect to that's get awesome thank you so much so yeah. what i want to do uh, to, to finish up with is uh um sort of do the uh mailbag for the questions that uh, we got on instagram uh for today if you don't sure. mind um so the first one i have is uh it's from uh daryl turkulis uh, he's actually a, a earlier guest on the podcast uh, his instagram is uh, barbells and burrs um oh, okay. and he was asked yeah he was asking about um like the efficiency of like thermophil system, which we kind of touched on. But the, uh, the other question that he had was um, like the single cone obturation, uh, which I think maybe comes into play with like systems like wave one, where uh, the master cones are like matching taper to the wave one. Um, so mm -hmm. theoretically, I mean, they should fit pretty snugly, right? So what's your thoughts on, like, on that mm -hmm. sort of obturation system where you're not really backfilling, or you're not really like laterally condensing, you kind of just uh, put the one cone in and just like seal it up at the orifice. The, the problem with the one cone system is that most of, uh, most of the time a canal is not a perfect um, shape. I know we, you know, we may end on a perfect shape, but the coronal third is often going to be a bit wider and the middle third might be a bit wider than the apical third. So basically it's a bigger taper. Yeah. Since it's not all one taper, the cone isn't actually obturating as that much space. And you are going to be a little bit more prone to having um, some voids. And when you have more voids in between the cone and the sealer or the sealer and the wall, then it's going to be easier for bacteria to travel down and leak through the obturation yeah. system. So that's the problem with a, with a true like single cone and nothing else type of system. Um, now, that can work for very thin canals sometimes. Yeah. There's, there's going to be, so this is going to be a little bit of a debate <laughs> amongst the endodontic community. Because yeah. the thing is, if you look at the warm vertical system, when you downpack, we're not actually downpacking, you know, to three millimeters from the apex or something like that. Most people mm -hmm. don't. You're usually downpacking as much as you can. So that's the usually to the middle or so of the canal system. Yeah. That means, if you think about it, everything after that, everything able to, to that is basically single <laughs> a single canal yeah. <laughs> you know so a single cone so you know there is some merit to it but with a big asterisk and that is if your canal was really small to start with and you didn't have a larger taper in the occlusal at all so um a very thin canal system 
And the other big asterisk is you have to use sealers and plenty of it, but sealers that are not going to really dissipate too much. Mm-hmm. So ZOE sealers, like our tried and true, like powder and liquid type yeah. ones, those are great. There's lots of research behind them. They, they go away. Some people who don't like the puffs, it's great for that because the puffs go away. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they might not seal as well or they're not sealing like everything, but like they they aren't quite the same as a bioceramic sealer or a resin-based sealer. So resin-based, like Age Plus, a lot of people use that. That's kind of like the most published of, the, of a lot of the sealers yeah. besides the ZOE sealer. Um, so a lot of the re- research between Age Plus and bioceramics is going to be pretty similar. Bioceramic is super useful in a lot of situations, but as a pure sealer in and of itself, um, the problem with bioceramic is that you can't retreat it that well. Hard, if, yeah. if it's blocking the apical third, that's it. It's empty. It's essentially almost the same thing as MTA. So you've blocked out the apical third. Uh, yeah. You can't get past it. So, um, and, but it does yeah. go into the tubules and everything very well. So there's some pros and cons to and, it. There's pros yeah. and cons. And on the topic sealer. of the sealer. Um, so when you're obturating, um, how do you apply the sealer? Like, do you put it on a paper point or something, or do you use like a hand file? Or do you just kind of uh, use it on the cone and with the master cone and put it in that way? No, there. I never. For me, I like to have plenty of sealer. I would. I like puffs. There's the whole puffs versus no yeah. puffs. <laughs> doesn't matter all that much. But I happen to like puffs. I really like to make sure it's sealed yeah. and I have a lot of sealer in there. So I actually take a paper point. I coat the canals really well with sealer. But then if it's a thin canal system or a really long system sometimes even the cones don't get the sealer as far as i would like so i actually coat a 15 file set it at kind of where my bait set it at my working length and then take some that some sealer onto it and then guide it down the canal so that i can seal even the apical third as well yeah yeah so um but for the one single cone system it's possible, but with a big asterisk, and that's based on sealer type, making sure that you don't have voids, yeah. and depending on the canal system. So if we're looking at an anterior where those are huge, I mean, we've seen that they're really large canals, a lot of them. I wouldn't recommend it for that, but the but like an MB2 or really thin premolar or something like that, there's a single canal, a, a single cone is not going to change your outcomes that much because it's already so well fitted. Perfect. Yeah. So the, uh, the next question we have is uh, from Dr. Khalil. Um, he's based out of Egypt. And uh, mm-hmm. so he had a multi-part question. So the first question he had is okay. how many times would you retreat a tooth? Oh, um, depends on who had done the retreatment <laughs> first. Yeah. So let's say this tooth had a, a, a retreatment, yes, but the retreatment was of a tooth that was barely treated to start with. I wouldn't mind retreating again, yeah. but I wouldn't do it more than twice. And if he mean, it, it, and that's if he meant uh, non-surgically. Yeah. But usually our standard protocol is a, first a retreatment uh, non-surgically, and then apical if it's uh, not healing as well as we'd like, or if the treatment, if we weren't able to achieve our treatment outcomes, meaning like, let's say there's a separated instrument in there and I'm not going to be able to remove it. There's just no yeah. way. And it's associated with a lesion. In that case, I would do the retreatment and apico because I want to make sure that the inside of the tooth is really, really clean. And then 
I would also clean out the outside using an Apico. Okay, that's pretty cool. And then uh, he's also asking um, how much magnification do you normally use for your cases? Are you using like a microscope always or do you ever just use your loops? Or So 100% under a microscope. I only do a few things not using a microscope and that's like putting a dental dam on and anesthesia because yeah. I want to have my landmarks. But other than that, everything is under the scope. Uh, what a, there yeah. are endodontists who don't use microscopes, but again, that's because not, not because they don't need a microscope in and of itself, but because they already have the experience of knowing what to look for and where. Yeah. So that's the biggest thing. It's not just having a microscope. It's also the training and the experience of, of no, knowing how to look for everything and knowing what to look for. Okay. That's great. <laughs> uh, the actual microscope, magnification yeah. um, i use a zeiss yeah, oh, microscope nice. yeah. it's a five-step microscope yeah what, but, what's that is that like um, 10 yeah, or what's the magnification on a microscope like the um, i can't remember off the top of my yeah. head it's ranges because there's five steps on it and then the actual optics themselves have some magnification wow. so the little knob on the outside that's not the true total i'd love to i'd love to like try it once just to see what it looked like how a tooth looks like i wonder how much like more you can see it must be crazy um Absolutely what about when you're uh, yeah. in private practice like um do you, have, uh-huh. do you have just like your loose back then and uh what magnification did you use when you if you didn't have a microscope when you're like in private practice so i use the three and a half x okay. loops yeah. when i was in private practice yeah but definitely the change from a loops to a microscope is, is huge. The world of difference, because I'm not, I'm not working under like 20 X magnification at all times, but I'll use it to look for a separated instrument. I'll use it to look for a, um, a, another canal, or it helps me find like a deep split or something like that. Like those little clues. That's when I'm turning up the magnification either to the, the highest or the second highest. That's cool. I'm usually working, like just doing my regular work yeah. under uh, the lowest or second lowest. Okay, that's pretty good. It must be like a bit of a learning curve, like to get comfortable using it, right? The microscope. It is. It is. Because you remember from dental school, there was a little bit of a learning curve just to learn the uh, using how to, how to prep and everything with loops yeah, and then how yeah, to do the sure. direct vision oh, with man. loops, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, definitely uh, take a look at it. A lot of places, a lot of endodontists will definitely let you take a look through their yeah, microscope. Yeah, that'd be cool. Because, I'd be nice because yeah, I've seen yeah. uh, some, there's a few like uh, uh, dentists on Instagram that I think they're like in like, Singapore or Malaysia. I like Gria RR. I don't know if you've seen his profile, but he uses like a microscope for like mm-hmm. restorative, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, there are a fair number in California yeah. and I think Texas and like who do it. Yeah. Their margins, oh, the margins <laughs> are amazing. I, I feel so bad about myself every time I go on Instagram. <laughs> um, and uh, so he, his final question was, uh, how many times uh, have you broken a file? And but I think how I want to frame the question is, if a general dentist breaks a file, what's the best way do you think of, uh, managing it in terms of like uh, communicating to the patient that this has happened um, and knowing like when to even attempt to retrieve or just to like stop right away and refer it off. So I honestly, I wouldn't retrieve it, try to retrieve a file as a general dentist. There are so many things that you need to try to retrieve a file. Yeah. That's actually really hard to do it with. Um, I mean, there's you need an ultrasonic and it's going to be an ultrasonic that uh, like the endodontic kind so it's actually meant to prep away tooth structure yeah. and it's you're using it very very delicately because it's um it's it's the most conservative way of removing tooth structure mm-hmm. 
to actually access the separate instrument. Another thing is that's whether or not you could see the instrument. If an instrument is past the curve of of a canal, no way, yeah. if you the, the rule of thumb is if you can't see it under a microscope, you really can't retrieve it. You can't take out what you can't yeah. see. So it makes it really hard. Um, additionally, sometimes you need extra little tips and tricks of getting these files out. I'm like, there's a million and one different ways of yeah. getting separate <laughs> instruments out. So I wouldn't do it as a general dentist. I would really, really hesitate. There are too many ways to perforate the tooth. And it then, you know, the tooth, unfortunately, is done for. Yeah. Now, if it happens, and let's say it's just the very apical third of it, that's very difficult to retreat. I wouldn't even retreat most of those a lot of times, depending on the situation. But a lot of those you can't retreat. Yeah. The risk of removing excessive tooth structure and then the causing either perforation or too much risk to the tooth is so high, that's better just to leave them. So if they're already at the end of the treatment process, so like you've already done most of the instrumentation and irrigation, you're t the research has shown it doesn't significantly cause an adverse reaction now that's not to say that we should just be breaking files willy-nilly <laughs> but you know don't feel horrendously bad if sometimes you have to leave one yeah in. i was talking to my uh, one of my friends and we're talking about like those cases that you see um maybe like on instagram or on facebook where like the mm -hmm. dentist is like separate a file in like one canal and then they've gone on to like treat the other canals and like separate another file it's like uh, yeah. when do you stop like it's crazy some of the stuff that you see out there that's true um so next, you know yeah. it's probably trying to refer early to your question yeah. it's probably best to refer, refer early. early um next question i have is from uh, dr kaz um who told me to tell you he's a, he's oh, yeah. a big fan uh he's amazing like, he's such a purist like he's, he loves his literature um his so his question is like a bit uh technical um so he's asking like he's noticed based on like your posts of your cases that you put up um He's noticed like uh, variable like tape, uh, tapers on like on your finishes and your observations. Yes. Um, so he's he's referencing like uh, Steve Buchanan and uh, Martin Trope's papers. So he wanted to see what your rationale was for certain cases of you know going to a larger taper versus uh, keeping a minimal taper in some cases. I really tailor it to the tooth. Um, does he mean variable taper within the canal system or with like, uh, like, like uh, case to case? Like, uh, like, like you'll notice like on some of your fills, like uh, you've taped, like it's a larger taper on the, like on the, on the shaping. And then in some cases it's mm -hmm. like a smaller taper. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I try to tailor my cases to the tooth. Um, each tooth is going to be a little bit different, just like an MB2 is going to be different than a palatal. Yeah. So I'm not going to be as aggressive of, of putting like a, an 06 taper on a MB2. Um, so uh, I'm, or may, let's say it's a really curved case. And so something with a larger taper is going to also be a, a bit stiffer, right? Yeah. So if it's a really thin or really curved case, I might not necessarily want a really large taper. Um, or if a case has a really severe curve or a uh, really difficult access, I might have to use a controlled memory file that. Um, so like one of my favorite systems is edge endo. It's a great system. Also, you're asking about different systems, yeah. edge endo, very yeah. solid system. It has very thin tapers though. So it's a little bit difficult for a lot of people to operate at first. You may have to finish on a different yeah. file, but, um, because it has a, a maximum flute diameter, 
So the nice thing about Edge is that it is extremely flexible, which means I can pre-curve my files. It, it holds a curve rather than you know uh, flicking back to a straight yeah. file. It holds the curve. And so I can guide it into a really curved case or a really difficult access. Like sometimes I keep my accesses smaller or if it's a small opening, like a person can't open that yeah. wide. So sometimes I'll use those files and finish on those files only, which means that those have very, very small tapers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be a combination of a couple of factors of the tooth. If the tooth is very thin or very curved or very calcified. And then also with, um, if the access of it is difficult. Okay. So if it's a more curved or difficult access for the tooth, you prefer to go with a smaller taper because the file itself is going to be a bit more flexible to allow to get negotiate those canals. Is that right? Exactly. And then some canals just happen to be a lot larger. There are some, um, palatals and uh, or anterior teeth are going to be much larger so it just happens to be that they're going to be a large taper i'm just going to end it that way i'm not going to try to conform all my canals to a certain size and um, a lot of the papers that he's quoting like trope those are based on the size of the apex so the you know, 4004, that's a classic one, yeah. or 3004, 3006, depending on the paper, whatever paper you're mm-hmm. reading. That is so that you're guiding enough irrigation yeah, that's uh, right. solution to the apex, yeah. right? So he's absolutely correct, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the taper has to be all the way to that size, all the way to the top. Mm-hmm. So if I, most of those, my, most of my cases are at least a size 30. They don't look like it because if my flute diameter, so that width the diameter of the actual file is very slim. Just the apical third, like apical three millimeters might be a 3004, 4004. But the rest of it is going to be much slimmer. It might might only be a millimeter maximum flute diameter. Okay, that's great. That's awesome. And um, so I'm sure he'll listen to that and and learn a lot from it. Um, (laughs) So the last question I have is uh, from Dr. Freeman, uh, who just uh, came on the last couple episodes of the podcast. Um, and his question was, uh, with failing, uh, with implants failing more in healthy patients, like we're starting to see with, uh, especially with like maybe general dentists placing more and more implants, um, that is like a slight increase in like implant failure rates, um, as of late, mm-hmm. um, have you seen maybe like more trends towards maybe trying to save more teeth than to, um, just, you know, extract and place an implant? Have you seen maybe more, uh, attempts to like endo treat some teeth that maybe in, in the past, you know, five years would have been maybe extracted and, and replaced with an implant? Yes. Uh, I think that's in a combination of more and more advancements with apicos, as well as more and more understanding that of uh, implant fail- failures, not necessarily of the implants, not just of the implants having peri-implantitis or something like that, but also, you know, all the stuff that we see from on Instagram where occlusal problems mm-hmm. or uh, implant uh, hardware problems like broken screws, broken issues, yeah. that kind of thing. So uh, yes, and uh, I think yes, in a lot of ways. So for a lot of those factors, and then also because we understand that since implants have a failure, that means that there is a certain length of time that we're expecting for an implant to do well for, right? You know, a lot of times we're looking at um, a, a certain number of years. And so we sometimes want to extend that time or push it back a little yeah. bit. And so I guess the age of the patient's like a big factor, right? Maybe like exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great because you would yeah you would do the endo and then even if it lasts five or six or ten years and then that just 
means that the patient has longer with the implant, like in terms of like the life cycle. So uh, that's pretty cool. Exactly. And what about like, I've seen, uh, I know, I don't know about in the US, but in Canada, I've been hearing a lot of endodontists are actually placing implants. Like, what are your thoughts about that? So I, I understand the rationale and there are some endodontists, not very, uh, it depends on the area, depends on the endodontist. Yeah. There are some who do it and the rationale, their rationale is that uh, they see the tooth, there's a vertical root fracture, they're already in there, patient is already anesthetized, who better to just place it in place the implant while the patient's already yeah. there. Um, my, uh, my personal thing is that I am not anywhere near at nearly educated and trained anywhere near my OMFS colleagues, my periodontal colleagues, my pros colleagues. And on top of that, I see from all of our pros colleagues, for example, on Instagram discussing so all the time how restorative principles are so important yeah. in deciding even where it to drives put the placement. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So for me to to then place an implant right away with after uh, attempting endodontic treatment, you know, let's say I see the tooth is vertically root fractured, I wouldn't even know where to start with the restorative <laughs> treatment because, like, that means you'd have to, uh, like, how does the general dentist or the restorative dentist even know exactly what the restorative is going to be because they haven't like evaluated it, yeah. that. Yeah, they haven't evaluated that tooth with that treatment in mm -hmm. mind. So for my philosophy, it's that I would much rather stop my treatment, stabilize the tooth. Um, and not extract it just yet because that way the patient can return to their restorative dentist, know, have all the restorative planning in place before extracting the tooth. So that way they can decide whether or not an immediate plant implant is the best option, whether a uh, extraction and bone graft is going to be the best option, yeah. whatever it is. So that way they can do all the planning ahead of time. I'm, I'm very much for making sure all of my, um, all everything is in order before deciding that. So that's my personal philosophy yeah. on it. Uh, but the people who are uh, educated and trained enough they, that they feel comfortable placing implants, I mean, that's okay. I just don't personally feel as comfortable doing it. And additionally, it's a lot of materials and a lot of things <laughs> to, to have around. Yeah. I, exactly. So um, if they can have it where they're doing it as high of a level as our surgical periodontal and pros colleagues i mean that's great for them but i would not have those available so i don't have that's those. awesome and um so one last question i just had before before we wrap up here is um how often are you using like uh cbcts uh in, in your treatment planning or um as a diagnostic tool uh, in your cases that you're doing so i um cbcts are a great tool when you need them in my practice um we don't have we're having one installed very soon so i currently don't use them in practice in my practice yeah. that because i don't own the practice i work for somebody else for that with um in residency we had access to it all the time but um cbcts are great as additional like an adjunctive it's if it's something that you can't see through the pa and that's what the ada i mean aae has recommended yeah. that it's for certain situations that you can use it all the time and then certain situations you have to see whether or not you need mm -hmm. it so for the cases that they've already advised using it almost as a first uh, route right after the pa and you always take it is cases of trauma or invasive resorption. And then obviously if you're planning for an implant, yeah. those are some, uh, 
times where you're definitely, definitely going to take one right after taking the initial radiographs. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they're absolutely invaluable for situations like planning an apigo. Pretty much you have yeah. to plan because they're just like how you plan for an implant. You want to know exactly where all everything is. Same thing. They're great for an apigo. Additionally, they're really nice to have for a retreatment because that way you can locate exactly where a canal might be, um, as well as using them to see if uh, how extensive the existing treatment is. Are there any strip perforations or perforations? Are there any um, separated instruments or canal transportation or anything like that? Yeah, that's perfect. That. Yeah, so it's really great for a lot of ways. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been like an amazing episode. I think, I mean, I learned a lot. I've been writing down a lot. Um, I think I might even type up my notes and share it in the show notes because uh, um, like having an endodontist kind of go through like step by step how you do a root canal is pretty invaluable and pretty cool. So uh, I really want to th- Oh, really? Yeah. I'm glad. I was worried that I like just bored you. Uh, no, with not at all. I mean, that's like, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's where I want this podcast to be, right? People come in um, get relevant, like actionable information. Like, um, it's not always about like, you know, like doing this or doing that, but it's just like, you know, what's the basics of like steps of a root canal so people can maybe, um, see what you do and maybe like change it up a little bit or learn a thing or two, which is what I've done just now. So, uh, I really want to mm-hmm. thank you. And I thank you for answering the questions from, uh, uh, the people on Instagram. Uh, so Dr. Stephanie Tran, uh, her holiness, the pulp, uh, which is a fantastic, fantastic <laughs> name as well. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll tag you, um, in the show notes as well. So hopefully people can reach out to you if they have any questions or anything like that. And, um, hopefully we'll, we'll do another episode sometime down the line. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Anytime anybody have any questions, feel free to contact me. Um, you know, they can always contact me through Instagram and my other social media. So I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on here. I really enjoyed trying to you. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a good night. Yeah. Take care. Thanks. Bye. You too. Bye.